All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here on this Spring Canadian weekend. Um, <laughs> I, I noticed some of you are dressed up pretty warm. I'm still coming in my short sleeve shirts, and so I, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. I hope the environment here is doing okay for you in light of that. Um, oh, one, one point of apology before we jump in. Um, since my whole idea of showing you my granddaughter's baby pictures weren't so well last week, I realized that was completely inappropriate, so we'll try it again. Um, my, uh, this is my granddaughter up here. Yeah. Don't you love it when these pastors use their position and power to leverage their own agendas? It's like... <laughs> But uh, this is Evelyn Gracilea Maria Little. The details are there, some of you didn't catch that. I, I thought we needed to do this for the uh, six or seven of you that aren't friends with my wife on Facebook because you wouldn't have seen this already. Um, but anyway, and then my uh, son, of course, is the proud dad. He gets a chance to uh, hold there. And then Gabri, of course, is his mom. You've, you may have met her if they've been out here a couple of times during Christmas and had a chance to meet with them. And then, of course, the real important person is Barb's out there this weekend, and uh, she's had a chance. By the way, she doesn't go by Grandma. That's been the big debate is what were they going to call us. So you've got everything from uh, some of the Cuban language terms for Grandma and Grandpa, which uh, is their own. Uh, Barb goes by Nanita, not Grandma. They wanted to know what I was going to be called, and I thought, well, I'm Canadian, the best we've got is grandpa, and I thought, well, that's not very original. So then I thought, I told my daughter, I said, well, maybe I should do a Greek term. <laughs> and she writes back and she goes, Dad, you're not Greek. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, okay. Just trying to catch up to all the ethnic diversity in our family. But and so the best, that in the Greek term, it's papus. And that's the formal term for grandfather. Papu is for uh, grandpa, but I know where that's going to end up. That's going to be... <laughs> I, I'm not super excited about being called Grandpa Poo-Poo, so... <laughs> so, I, you know, I think it's just we're going to have to settle for grandpa. But anyway, it, it is what it is. Um, we're excited. Barb's obviously out there this weekend. She flies back tonight willing to make the sacrifice to get in at five in the morning uh, in order to be out there, so we'll have a lot of jockeying to do in the morning. But anyway, we're having, having a lot of fun. That gives you a little bit more detail on some of the things that are floating around in our family. So, New life is great, it's, uh, but also gives you lots of concern about the world they're growing up in, and so that'll transition nicely to just the heartbeat of what Paul's talking to the Romans about, but let's uh, bow for prayer before we jump into the text. Well, Father, we thank you for your great provisions in our life. We come through a week that for some of us was brutal, and it was really sucked the life out of us, and we may even be discouraged or confused. Uh, we live in uncertain times, and boy, we, just, we need some hope and encouragement to know how to navigate life. Uh, we're having to face it in ways and think about issues that we've never really given much attention to at times, and and so it forces us to think about our relationship with you, and, and for that we are grateful. We ask your forgiveness that often we take you for granted and don't give much thought to these things until the after, uh, the after effect. And so we pray you continue to allow your spirit room in our own heart and mind and in, the, in our emotions to help instruct us even this morning to understand our own posture in life and understand how you want to reshape our values and priorities and beliefs to come closer to what you have communicated in your word that we should not only embrace but the way we should live. We struggle with that because we have everything we think we need and we don't need anything else. And so we ask you continue to rekindle the, uh, the passion for the gospel and eternal things within our own heart. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to gather here freely this morning. For those who are watching online, we thank you so much for uh, just their presence, even though it's through uh, live stream. Uh, Father, we need your grace. We need your presence. We need to know that you are with us, as your word tells us. 
we know that fact's true, we just pray you give us the spiritual sensitivity to embrace the reality of it. We entrust ourselves to you as you speak to us this morning. Uh, help us to understand the greater picture of your redemptive plan, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The text this morning is Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. Uh, there's a lar- little larger section this morning dealing with the fulfilling the mission of the gospel. Paul is finishing off two full chapters of dealing with some of the conflict that's going on in the church. The heartbeat of it is people have have different convictions. Remember, the Jews and the Gentiles are now being kind of grafted in together into this thing called the body of Christ, and they are so different that they've got to figure out how to live in community. And it's very easy for people, and the term I phrase is to weaponize their own personal convictions and judge other people around them who claim to be Christians when they're not living the way they think they should. And so he's been dealing with this and really trying to speak boldly and very firmly about the reality of don't be sniping on one another. Uh, Let your personal convictions and your faith be between you and the Lord, and if it's different than others, we need to learn how to make accommodations for that. But coming here, he says some things that kind of finish off this section, and he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, obviously is implied there, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished uh, through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel." And I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, I've already mentioned the context, and Paul kind of brings this back together at the end here to remind him of his mission. In spite of the fact that he spent two chapters trying to manage this new community and how they ought to live with one another, and he says some pretty significant things in here related to that, he also reminds them that the overarching motivation isn't to get entangled in people's personal faith, but it's the mission of the gospel. And he's going to not apologize for it, and he shouldn't. He, being an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is God's call and ministry to him. The danger, though, in talking about someone like Paul is that it's easy for us to go, well, that's his calling in ministry, not mine. One of the things that he is not going to talk about in terms of this is he's not going to talk about it being purely his giftedness, although some of those are going to play into the conversation. He's going to talk about, listen, because of what I know about my relationship with God through Christ, the the compelling reality of what that is means that I'm always going to be on mission. And I'm always going to be looking for people who don't know Christ. Because the greatest hope that God offers to us is relationship with him. When the world is crumbling, the firm foundation is Christ. When there's civil wars going on, the foundation is Christ. When things are uncertain, the one who brings stability to our heart and mind is Christ. And if you want to understand, and if we can get past the information of it to embrace the reality of it, then we need to discover that in the turmoil that Paul is writing to with the Roman Empire ruling and the battles of the ethnic wars between Jews and Gentiles that are complicated now by the gospel, not in spite of it, that there's a need for Christians to live differently in the world. And we're in very similar circumstances where this needs to be true in our own environment. And and so as we move into this, I want you to sort of think about the, the Paul's perspective of how important the gospel is, and he begins right at the front end of this by talking about the fellowship he has with others because of the gospel. You and I both know that many of us would never hang out together, never spend much time together, apart from the fact that Christ brings us together. 
Oh, certainly we all have common ground, went to school together, might have worked and grew up in the area, and so we have some common links in that type of life. But there's lots of us that have moved out in from the outside. We're looking for a community that has the same faith, the same uh, propensity in relationship with God, or people are looking for it, And so this is what brings us together. And so he addresses them very simply by saying in this opening remark, and concerning you, my brethren, or my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we could skip over that and and almost ignore it if we wanted to, but I want you to notice that what Paul's been talking about, especially when there's Jews and Gentiles involved, who would have every reason not to hang out with one another, is that the gospel redefines a sense of new humanity. That it can take people who have been enemies and at odds, have different value systems and worldviews and different behaviors and practices, in one sense a whole different kind of religion from one another, and through the gospel he can put people who would never hang out together and he puts them in this new community called the church. And, and so he's writing to these people, dealing with some sensitive issues. It doesn't mean it's ever perfect. It means that it shouldn't be hostile, and that's one of the dangers that they had in terms of their own faith. But there's something that isn't just healthy for us, but it's what the world needs. A group of people who are learning to live above all the chaos of this world, learning how to live by faith in a God who is speaking to us about living in a very different way than the world expects. And often it's a struggle. But it's a fellowship that is created by the gospel and it's defined by the gospel. And these new relationships are really the critical piece of how God is working in the world. You'll see as we've gone through chapter 14 that he says all this is to be to the, to the praise and the worship and the honor and the glory of God. And so it comes back in very simple terms that the unity of this fellowship that we have in Christ is absolutely indispensable to the mission of God's redemption. I mean, that's what Jesus said. They, the world, will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. And so whatever personal preferences and ways of doing things and personal convictions that might even clash with where others are in the body, that at least in terms of the few hours that we are able to gather together, that there's a time to set those aside and say, the critical piece here is that Christ needs to be the centerpiece of all that we do. The gospel needs to shape the way that we live with one another. And if that means I sacrifice some elements in terms of my own ways of doing things, I should gladly be willing to do it. But he talks about this fellowship through the gospel that it transforms individual lives. We don't know, and we'll bring it up later, whether Paul ever got to Illyricum, uh, which we'll show you later where that is, but it's his influence that has taken the gospel there, and people have come to Christ. So we don't actually know whether he personally knew these, all these people or not. And yet, their lives have been transformed by the gospel. And he, in fact, says that. He also says, I, I notice that in this whole process, you are full of goodness, it's, it's a unique statement, but one that isn't just random. We might talk to anybody in the world. We have a non-Christian friends and people, and they're great people. You might easily put the label on them that they're full of goodness, but he's looking at this particularly from the perspective of God. If you remember in Romans chapter three, he spent a good bit of time telling us that no one is good. No one does good. So from the the high-level perspective of God, the theological perspective that God has on all of humanity is that we are all sinners. The text says this, are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we are already charged that everyone, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless, one of the versions say. No one does good, not even one. So the issue is not comparing my actions to other people, it's the level of God's perspective of the sea of humanity that have rejected him and done life without him. And God says, no one seeks after me on their own, No one cares about me. No one obeys my word, not on their own efforts. That's completely foreign to the fallen heart. 
And yet God in all of his love is one who has extended his son as a supreme sacrifice for us so that we can be back in right relationship with him. So the word goodness is used in a couple other places. For instance, in Ephesians 5, it says, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, same word that's used here, and right and true. So goodness, when Paul talks about goodness, it's related to the concept of being children of light, being in relationship with a God who is pure and holy and majestic. So it's not goodness based on how we would define it, it's based on goodness based on the character and the nature of God. Second Thessalonians chapter one says the same thing. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power. So goodness is in the context of relationship with Christ where he's transforming me into the image of himself and that my goodness is defined by the Spirit of God. It's related to a work of faith and living in relationship with God. It's related to the idea of living in light and purity and holiness. So this goodness is something that is infused by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of the living God in those who understand their brokenness and need and, can't, and know they can't fix it. We can manage it, but before God we can't fix it. And so they recognize this need to surrender fully to God and accept his goodness into our life, not try to prove we're good enough for him. I need to keep reminding us that if we are on a bent where we don't think we need Christ and we're going to try to prove to God that I'm a good person by doing nice things and avoiding bad stuff, I can, I can assure you by the scriptures that it will never, ever, ever, ever be good enough. There's just nothing that we can ever do because then we get into this comparative thing where, well, this person did more than this person. Why does this person deserve to get in? This person didn't do, his, didn't do all this ugly stuff that someone else did, so I don't think they should get in. I mean, if you leave it up to us, it's a train wreck. But God has put all of humanity in the same boat saying, listen, you're going to come to me on my terms, not yours. And goodness is only found in surrendering to God through faith in Christ, and then he gives us his goodness. We don't try to prove our own. But the second thing he talks about is not just transform relationship, but transform individuals. He's talking to these people and says, you're filled with knowledge. Now, there's ultimately, the idea of knowledge means to come to an understanding as the result of ability to experience and learn. You know, it's always discouraging when I run into people who think they've got it all figured out and they don't need to learn anything. And they're out there. And Christians can get into that easily themselves. You know, especially if you get a chance to go to Bible college or seminary or whatever, but even if you don't, there's, there's lots of times that we think that we've got it all figured out. We've got our theological systems, we've got our biblical frameworks. We think we've got it all figured out because we've seen this in Christendom, that even other Christian churches who embrace other parts of the scripture differently, we spend more time complaining and criticizing and judging rather than worrying about the, the, the critical issues of Christianity. And so information, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, is dangerous because it has a tendency to make us arrogant. But love edifies. And so at the heart of this, when he talks about being filled with knowledge, inevitably he's talking about knowledge of God first. I mean, in Romans 1, it tells us that humanity has exchanged the glory of, of God for, for the creation. And we worship the creature rather than the creator. That's the status. We've suppressed the truth of God in our ungodliness and in our unrighteousness. And God gives us a chance to rediscover not only relationship with him, but knowledge of the God who brought us into being. And so the one aspect of this is just learning a lot of stuff that we just can't manufacture on our own. And we find it in the scriptures. But the other part of knowledge is not just information about God, but it is uh, this idea of knowledge walking with God. It's called, uh, to me, it's knowledge in relationship. Hebrews chapter five talks about this. You know, by this time you ought to be teachers and like you're stumbling around like infants. 
You know, you, you need milk and not solid food because the people who really know God are individuals who not just take in the information, but they look around at their life and they go, how do I practice this truth? How do I actually take this truth and it shapes the choice I make in this relationship? How do I make this choice in relationship to, to my finances? How do I make this choice in relationship to how I'm gonna live? Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7. Talks about the, the two different people who build their houses, one's on the rocks and one's on the sand. And the person who builds on the sand hears all the words and knows the information but doesn't actually practice that truth. And so when the storms of life come by, they're destroyed by the storms and the chaos of life and what's happening. But Jesus specifically says, the one who hears my words and acts upon them, that's the person that will live a life that is solid and firm and anchored to the unshakable truth of God's word. And listen, I don't need to tell you that one of the greatest traps in the Christian life is we become ferociously hungry to learn more information and put very little effort into application. It's not because we want to do it on, we don't do that on purpose, but man, our lives are so busy. By the time I think of how this truth ought to apply my life, the week's gone and I'm back in Sunday school again or whatever, learning another truth. Don't you just hate it when teachers go, all right, we talked about applying this to our life last week, how many of you did it? You get like 30 people in the class and like one or two hands come up, like, here we go. What happened to the rest of you? Wow, it's just really busy. It's just exhausting. Got a newborn in the family, like it just consumes all my time. And that's what happens in life. We understand the struggle. But what we also have to realize is that the reality is is that if we don't take knowledge and we start allowing it to shape the way we live life, we will harden our heart to the truth we already know and become deeply disenfranchised with who God is because then we'll start treating him like a concierge who's supposed to fix life, not a God who's supposed to transform my life. And you can always tell the people that, that have gathered more information than what they're practicing because at some point they go, I don't know if this works. You know, I've been doing this my whole life and I don't know, just it doesn't seem to be any different. And at somewhere at that point, someone takes the knowledge they have and they start thinking that God needs to be a concierge to do things for them rather than seeing the personal responsibility to be transformed by that same truth. And so they are filled with knowledge, but it's dangerous to be filled with knowledge if it's not transforming the way we live. But he also talks about this able to instruct one another. He's very positive towards them in one sense. You're full of knowledge. You, you are, have, are able to instruct one another, which counter to some traditions in biblical or religious history you know, there's a lot, lot of history that tells us that the only people who can properly understand and tell you what the truth says about the scriptures is the pastor or the clergy or whoever happens to be the paid staff. Paul makes it pretty clear that he's not just saying, hey, that's only the pastor's job. That it's all our responsibility to, to learn how to look and feed on this word so that not just for myself, but so that we can instruct and encourage and speak wisdom in each other's life. That's the whole point of being part of community. And that's one of the beauties of it is that I can call up my friend who isn't the, isn't the pastor or the elders or the leadership and we can get together whether it's small groups or community groups or we can interact just over coffee and we can say, listen, I'm struggling with something here. I need some wisdom into it. And we have the freedom and the responsibility to know truth well enough that I can speak it into someone else's life. But I also have to have the courage and the faith to allow other people to speak into my life. And allow me to listen to other people. And that's the beauty of it. There's no way churches should be dictatorships. It should never just hinge on just what the pastor does. The beauty of God's truth is it empowers the whole community to have truth from God. That they can not only live out in their own life, but they can go shoulder to shoulder with people who might be struggling at different times with life and speak wisdom and encouragement and hope and kindness and grace 
so that they can discover the life-changing reality of trusting God in ways maybe they haven't learned how to trust him. That's a, that's a community responsibility. And so as he talks about being instructing one another, it's just, it, it, it sort of ups the value of every person in the body of believers. It's not about just sitting on a Sunday and listening to someone speak. It's, it's about being in community. And so he paints this amazing picture that Jews and Gentiles can get together and they can actually build into one another's life in a transformative way because of this gospel that Paul has been sharing. And Paul can speak to them as brothers and sisters in Christ and you can take Jews and Gentiles who treat each other like family because of the gospel. Listen, we've got a world out there that is hurting badly. They desperately need to discover family in a way that transcends their own families because some of them are a train wreck. Some of them have no hope. You've got individuals who've been isolated and ostracized. And the whole framework of the body of Christ is that we can learn to be this new humanity that's becoming a light of God in the world and to people who desperately need to find him. And so as he, as he moves through this, then Paul adds kind of his own personal touch to this because he's reminding them of the bigger picture. And so he starts with his own focus on the gospel about a, a strong reminder of what he's about and it really centers on God's grace. It's a very simple phrase when you look at it. When he starts into verse 15, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. Now, let me remind you that in the simplest terms, grace is undeserved favor. I think mercy is very much along the same lines, but I define grace as the kindness of God to provide what is both necessary and sufficient for life and godliness. And as we're instructing one another, we ought to be extending grace to people so that they can move from darkness, so they can move from sin, or they can, so that they start embracing the kind of life God calls us to, and it, it's gotta look like godliness, not goodness. I mean, we're full of goodness, but it's easy for us to define what's good in our own terms. And that's what God's grace does. It always will take us on a path to look like and live in Christ, and it will be godly. It will look like the way uh, behavior in life that God would approve of. And, and so that becomes the framework. <laughs> there is a tradition that centers around Jonathan Edwards, who was the third president of Princeton and uh, labeled as one of America's great thinkers. And he had a, da a daughter who had a horrible temper. But apparently, she apparently had met a young man and he kind of fell in love with her and they developed a relationship. And this man just came to uh, Jonathan Edwards one time and asked for her hand in marriage. Jonathan Edwards looked at him and said, well, you can't have her. Good old-fashioned dad, I guess. And uh, they, they went through this, uh, it was kind of abrupt and it took him back a little bit, but he says, well, I love her. And he says, well, you can't have her. And so then he tried something different. He says, well, but she loves me. He says, well, you still can't have her. And he's getting really puzzled by this, and he finally said, well, hang on, wait a minute. Isn't she a Christian? And he says, yes, absolutely she's a Christian. And he says, well, why can't I marry her? Well, Jonathan Edwards, just knowing his daughter, said this. Yes, she is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live with. She must have had a really wild temper. I mean... Usually my posture with my daughter would be, no one's worthy enough to marry her. But you know, not to be disagreeable to Jonathan Edwards, but God's grace gives us the ability to live with people that we think would be unbearable to live with because we understand our own status before God. God's grace can enable you and me to not only personally change into the image of Christ when we think it's absolutely impossible, because sometimes we can't even live with ourselves. Why do you think suicides and everything are up and marriages are being destroyed? Because people not just don't know how to live with one another, they don't know how to live with themselves. And because of that, 
People are self-destructing. The problem is we keep trying to manage it and as chapter 14 and 15, we keep trying to force our convictions on other people to fix them so that when they live the way we want them to, then everything will be okay. Not. See, the only thing that can help us live with ourselves and live with people who at times would seem impossible and unbearable to live with is God's grace. If you don't understand God's grace, that won't make any sense to you. But God's Spirit is constantly extending grace to us to find a pathway that embraces the life of Christ, that reflects the character of Christ, and lives a godly life. If you're not interested in that, then grace isn't going to help you. Because that's the only way that's achievable. And if I back into the chapters we just read, it's not by forcing my convictions on how other people ought to live. It's God's grace. And I, and I want to encourage you that if you don't understand God's grace, this Christian life is virtually impossible. And so he comes back and says, God's grace, but then he talks about, a, a, he gives them a reference letter. I am, not, I am not producing my own ministry here. I'm not trying to build my kingdom. He says, God's calling is that I'm a minister to the Gentiles. God's made it really clear what I need to be doing. And he also calls it a priestly service to the gospel. Now you can tell he's writing to some Jews because the Old Testament priesthood was about the, the individuals who mediated between God and the people. They helped deal with their sin. He helped care for them. He helped them understand peace offerings and gift offerings and love offerings and, and the moral code in terms of how they're to, to live. And clearly, that's a burden that, for instance, pastors and elders and shepherds and others have, is we're not here to force people to live according to my personal conviction. We're helping them discover God's grace so they can have this deep, intimate, flourishing relationship with the God who saved them. But that's also our posture with one another. That we each have the capacity, because of what Christ is doing in us, to move alongside others and give them a word of encouragement and wisdom and perspective. Because it comes from the scriptures if we're living by them. And it's empowered by the Spirit of God and his grace that always provides a hope and a pathway to life in Christ and godliness. Remember the sorrow of the world always brings death. So when I run into a person who's literally so can't live with themselves and it's too unbearable because I'm a complete screw up and I'm just horrible and I've got too many problems and I can't live. I know they're giving in to the sorrow of the world, that Satan's getting the better of them because the Spirit of God never paints that picture in our life. He's always saying, listen, if you will surrender to me and not try to manage your own stuff, I can bring life to your tortured heart and spirit. I can bring new sense of hope to the journey you're going on, regardless of the circumstances of the people around you. But it's going to require a sense of trusting God and surrendering that he knows life better than I do. And he knows you better than you know yourself. And so this reminder is saying, first and foremost, I'm I represent God. This isn't my thing. This is God's thing. He wants to do a redemption. I'm not starting my own business, Paul says. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But this isn't something Paul's manufacturing in his head because he wants to become popular. And so he has got a calling from God. And you'll notice in this this text that who, who he represents talks about God and grace. It talks about Christ, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the gospel. And it talks about the Holy Spirit, who's the one that sanctifies individuals to be acceptable to God. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in this. And Paul says, listen, there, he said this back in, uh, back in Corinthians. He says, I know I'm completely inadequate for this. It's only the Spirit of God that gives us any hope to, to offer anything to anybody else that's worth anything. But that's because this is, the, this is the grace of God. It is the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is the power and the transformation power and presence of the Holy Spirit that makes us acceptable, that gives us the right to become children of God. And when we, roll out, when we believe in God and trust in his word, then we can surrender to him and he can do things in our life that we can never even imagine. Now I want you to have a sense of this because Paul's faithfulness to the gospel is unshakable. We look at him kind of like a, almost a tyrant. That guy's so sold out to this, he'd drive most of us nuts. And, and, but I want you to notice, first of all, the reason he's faithful is Christ's work in Paul. You'll notice he starts off verse 17, he says, in Christ Jesus, then, this is what I'm going to do. So Paul's not speaking anything to anybody else that he hasn't experienced himself. And it begins with being in Christ. It's a statement of saying, when a person puts faith in Jesus and God forgives their sins and he gives them a right standing before him and removes them from his judgment and makes them children of God, then they, they, they live in this new mode of existence of being under the care of Jesus. And they're in Christ. I don't work for it. I don't earn it. I can't impress God to give it to me. It's something, it's the gift of his grace to those who will surrender and put faith in Jesus. So Paul's saying, listen, I know what this is personally. I know what he's done in me. And he was changed by the gospel. He was changed by God's grace. And he's transformed by the Holy Spirit. If you don't know Paul, he was a bit of a turkey before he came to Christ. Well, he was. Maybe you have a different word for it, but <laughs> you use a lot of words. I'm using turkey. It feels like a politically safe word to use. <laughs> but then he talks about Christ's work through him. And I, I want those of you that especially are convinced that God could never any, do anything through me, that God doesn't do a work in me if he's not planning on doing a work through me. The person who keeps making excuses that I can't get involved or I can't do anything for God is a person who doesn't understand God's grace and he doesn't understand his love and she may not understand what this transforming work is meant to do. Because what happens if we accept Christ, then we kind of go, all right, where do all my talents and abilities do so I can do something for him? And then we start comparing ourselves to other people and go, well, I couldn't do that because you know, they do it better than I do so I wouldn't fit. We get into all this stuff and, and we default and, dis, and, and create this train wreck on our own life, but Paul's making it clear. Because of what God has done in me, now God does something through me. And Paul already said to them, listen, if you are full of goodness, here's the qualifications, if you've got the goodness of God in you because you've trusted him and you're full of knowledge of God, not that you've got it figured out, but you are being filled up with the knowledge of God and you keep on learning, and I'm learning how to apply that, and then I have the ability to instruct one another. See, one of us, most of us want to, if we can't do anything that's going to change the entire world, why do it? Well, because God redeems us one person at a time. And if you have the privilege to lead someone to Christ, then you have the glorious privilege to help them learn how to walk with Jesus. Or you might have someone that's just in complete distress because they're at their end of their rope and they're feeling overwhelmed and they want to go for coffee and all you have to do is listen to them, give them a hug, and they're your best friend forever. Because you cared enough to take the time in the busyness of all the chaos to make time for that particular person on that particular day and said, hey, I'm willing to listen. And so as Paul paints this out, he says, what, th I'm proud of the work that I'm doing because of Christ's work th that he's accomplishing through me. Again, he's not even taking credit for what am I doing for God? Look at how good I am. I mean, he debunked that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where people started putting Paul and Kephas on a pedestal going, hey, Paul baptized me, that's pretty cool. No, Kephas, man, I got to shake hands with him. We got our picture taken. I got it up in my room. Right? We love that stuff, don't we? We're enamored by celebrity Christianity. Paul jumps on that with both feet and says, what's so wrong with you? This is about Christ. You don't baptize in my name. I, 
Apollos plants, I water it. God's the one that gives it the growth. And if you're into it for celebrity status, go find a different religion. I mean, (laughs) that's not what it's about. But many of us have to just be convinced that God's working in me and he can do something through me. Notice what Paul says, by word and deed. That may be as far as you'd be able to go on his chart list, but by your words and deeds, you are do- God is working through you. And Paul just, he took action. The, the, to the knowledge that God gave him and the transforming work of the Spirit, he put words and feet to it. Maybe that's all you think you can do is, okay, I gotta live like Jesus and I gotta speak like Jesus. But that's what Paul, that's all he said. You don't have to do, Paul never comes to him and says, you have to do what I'm doing. Because you're filled with the same goodness that I'm filled with, because you are filled with the knowledge, you can instruct and move alongside each other and and that's a meaningful, significant, eternal ministry. Because then Paul's gonna say, well, I also do it by the power of signs and wonders. Now, we're not gonna get off on that, but it was pretty clear from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 that signs and wonders were the signs of a true apostle. So clearly, in that particular stage, God had given the ability to demonstrate certain things to prove the authority of his messenger. And then he says that I do it by the power of the Spirit of God. I mean, that's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, listen, you have this treasure of Christ in you, specifically so that people wouldn't think the power is from us, that we're just magnificent entrepreneurs and we're creating something that needs to be done, but so that the power may be of God and not of us. Unless the power of God, the, the power of his personal presence is changing people, then, then we're gonna create a pseudo-Christian walk that doesn't reflect the presence of Jesus. You can't force a person to accept Jesus. Only the power of the Spirit of God can. And if you try to force that just to win the sale, <laughs> then you're, you're in for a huge train wreck because that won't be a real decision. And so that's the, God's grace working in Paul. But then he talks about working through Paul. He talks about two different people. I mean, he's, he's, he talks about the Gentiles and he's talking about the Jews, but he does it in the, in the context of places. He talks about Jerusalem, and then he talks about Illyricum. Literally, these two, in terms of Paul's life, couldn't, are the, probably the farthest reaches of where he was trying to get to. Jerusalem, you're pretty familiar with. When Paul was on his road to Damascus, he was taking letters from the Pharisees to go and haul Christians out of their houses, to persecute them, to punish them, and even to throw them in prison and have them killed because they were against his religion. And so it took him a while to be accepted by the other apostles and and believers. In fact, when you uh, look at the map, you discover that in chapter 9 we have some of this information, but it tells us very clearly in 26, Paul, when he did come to Jerusalem, had a hard time fitting in because it's like, this is the turkey that killed us. What are we going to, are you kidding, this is a bait and switch. He's just figuring out a way to get in here so he can hammer us. Illyricum, on the other hand, is a place that's on the far side of Asia. It's up in uh, different areas. You Thessalonica, um, my, 2 Timothy 4.10, he tells us that he sends Tim, uh, Titus uh, to Dalm, uh, Dalmatia which is probably on the lower end of Illyricum, but it's way out on the far side of Asia on the other. We don't have any actual record that Paul actually got to this place, but it shows from Jerusalem to here, he's had influence. Now, the the issue here that I wanna raise with you is you don't have to go to Jerusalem and you don't have to go to Illyricum, but what are the places that God has placed you in? I mean, Are you making any effort to communicate the gospel to anybody in your neighborhood where you live? Or maybe the place that you really need to learn how to see people through the lens of the gospel is at work. Or maybe it's on the sports team. Or maybe 
It happens to be in the club that you belong to. But the danger for many of us, we know, is that we've got our lives so busy that the idea that I should be developing a relationship with unbelievers in the workplace, in my neighborhood, whatever, just one seems too overwhelming because I've got my life so busy I haven't got time for this. Or we look at them through the eyes of men and we look at their outward appearance and go, oh, they'll never listen to me. I'll never get anywhere with them. And I get it. The question we have to ask is not whether you'll get anywhere with them, but will the gospel get anywhere with them? We, see, we keep trying to manage our Christian life through our eyes and our abilities and what we think makes sense rather than surrendering to God and walking with him. And so Paul says that his ambition is, well, I'm going to preach the gospel. Well, of course he is because he's an apostle. But I think there's an element that God has placed us on this earth to communicate the gospel. It, it doesn't depend on your spiritual gift, your talent. It doesn't matter what you come up on Enneagram. It doesn't matter what you look like in the cultural index. It doesn't matter what you got on the disc profile. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because this isn't hinging on what spiritual gift you have. It's based on, am I really experiencing Christ in me to do something through me? And if we don't understand God's grace or his love or the goodness that he places in us through his indwelling spirit or not, we're not growing in knowledge that's changing our life, then we won't see any need that we have to instruct anybody about anything because I don't know all the answers and I haven't got all the solutions and I don't know the questions they're going to ask and I can't do that because I don't really understand God's goodness in me. I don't really understand this relationship that I have with God because I know stuff about him but it's not changing me. And so Paul's attitude is very simple. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He's going to talk a lot about that, and we could spend a lot of time looking at it, but his whole commitment, his whole approach is I want to find people who don't know Jesus. And all I want to ask you is, does that spark in you anywhere? Because you and I both know that the busyness of life can snuff out even the best intention. And if you, if you got yourself so chaotically busy running through life that the whole idea of how do I sit down because of the goodness of God in me and the things that I do know, that I can sit down even from an unbeliever and I can have a conversation where I can communicate the hope that Christ has given me. Or I can ask questions to help them maybe discover that the things that they believe may be not quite as solid, maybe not quite as sustainable as they are counting on or hoping they will be. Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because he makes a final quote that actually comes out of Isaiah. What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the first Corinthians passage, not the Isaiah one. But he's basically saying, there's going to be people that stand back and they're going to hear things they've never heard before. Nowhere in their imagination could they ever dream that God would actually create a pathway to him that looks so ridiculous to human beings. It looks foolish and stupid. How can anyone who died for me 2,000 years ago have, make any meaningful difference to my life today. Well, I hope every one of you could stand up and say, let me tell you my story. Because I can tell you exactly how this Jesus of Nazareth, who isn't just some dead leader who spouted off some nice platitudes and some nice cliches that we can live by, is a living, resurrected Savior who I finally came to a point in my life where I surrendered my life to God by saying, God, I recognize I'm a sinner and I've fallen short of your glory. I need you to forgive me. Remove me from your judgment. Give me your righteousness and your goodness. And I know you've promised that I can become a child of God where I will belong to you no matter what happens in this life and that'll never change. And as you discover how that looks in terms of 
reshaping your beliefs and values and priorities and your behaviors. All you have to do is be one step ahead of someone else that says, I don't know how to do this, and hey, let's have coffee. Because something that simple can have an eternal impact for someone who feels like, I can't even stand to live with myself because I've got this performance mentality and I can't live up to it, it's just too exhausting. And you can show how God's grace can say, listen, just rest in the fact you're a child of God and he loves you. And the Spirit of God can change their heart to discover a whole new trajectory in life because of the very simple words that God speaks through you to someone who desperately needs it. Paul was committed to fulfilling the mission of the gospel. That's what we need to be at, is fulfilling the mission of the gospel. To have the mindset that every time we walk out of this building, every time you walk out of your house, every time you enter into the workplace, God has you on mission to give hope to the hopeless, to give promises that you don't necessarily keep, but God will, to help them find a new trajectory in life that gives them hope and purpose and significance. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we... Paul was about fulfilling the mission of the gospel, and it created this new fellowship with people, this new humanity, this new community of people who in many ways were so different, and yet were striving for the same thing, trying to discover this life in Christ. Because we're constantly on this journey that I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to learn about God's love. I'm, I'm experiencing God teaching me how, about his kindness. God is, by his spirit, is teaching me about the idea of self-discipline. And boy, it's a struggle, but I'm... The, the, I'm engaged in it and I've made some choices that are deeply encouraging to me because I can see his grace changing the way I think and feel. I met with a friend this week who just needed encouragement and I didn't think I did anything but boy, they seemed so appreciative of just taking the time to care. Father, help us to understand you've called us to fulfill the mission of the gospel. Teach us how to walk with you, to know the goodness that you've placed in our own heart and spirit. Keep filling us up with the knowledge of who you are, not just as information, but life change. So that we might, whether it's with a believer or unbeliever, sit down and be able to instruct others about the amazing grace of Jesus. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.